And we come now to our Bible reading and to this grand finale in the book of Joel. And we'll find that many of the themes that he has weaved together come uh, together in a crescendo, a sort of crashing finish as we close here. And he's um, chapter, the beginning of chapter three, Joel started a, a section on the judgment to the nations. And there's a, a prose section. And from verse 9 onwards uh, to the end of the book, there's a, a poetry section dealing uh, with the judgment to the nations and salvation for his people Israel. So let me uh, read from verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Well, may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word for us this morning. And so this uh, final section in the book of Joel breaks into really two parts and um, it starts off with the Lord's judgment of the nations 12 through to 15 and then you have this section where the, the Lord roars from Zion the Lord's presence with his people and the Lord being with his holy people in this um, from verse 16 to the end so the Lord judging the nations and the Lord being with his people as their refuge uh, and as the one to bring um, salvation and blessing. So it's judgment and salvation. And so we come to this, this first section from verse 12 uh, about the nations stirring themselves up and coming to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the nations, all the surrounding nations. Now, the nations that he's talking about, that Joel is speaking about, are the, the nations surrounding his people, 
Israel that had caused them uh, such difficulty. So he's mentioned Edom and Tyre um, and Tyre and Sidon. And then right at the end of the, the passage of the reading, he mentions uh, Egypt in verse 19 and Edom again. So these are historical nations that have been causing Israel great trouble and attacking them. And the Lord is saying here that he's going to actually deal with those nations and bring judgment upon, upon them. Um, so really this is meant to, to encourage Israel that have been pressed down and facing difficulty that the Lord is sovereign and that he will judge the nations. And they're all called together into this valley of Jehoshaphat. Now we've mentioned this before, there's just great discussion about this valley of Jehoshaphat and actually historically great confusion about it because um, well, in the fourth century, an anonymous pilgrim actually gave the name the Valley of Jehoshaphat to the valley which was just east of Jerusalem. So between the, the, the city and the Mount of Olives, there's a little valley and someone, someone in the fourth century said, well, that's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And so as a result, for centuries, people thought, well, this little valley was uh, the scene of the, the last judgment. Um, which caused great confusion to medieval theologians as how people would actually fit into this little valley. Um, various theories about that. And actually, pilgrims would even place a stone in the valley to reserve their spot, I suppose, to get a, to get a, good, to get a good view. Um, and it just shows, I think, the importance of really coming to, to the scriptures and, and seeking to understand them and what historical errors, what, what strange things that can lead to. For Jehoshaphat simply means uh, the Lord is judge. Um, and so the, the point about this valley of Jehoshaphat is not the location. We're not given a location of it, but it's the place of God's judgment, that he will bring judgment on the nations. And so these nations historically that, that have risen up against God's people will ultimately be dealt with. And they were actually, under Alexander the Great, they were, these surrounding nations were, were defeated and um, Israel had a measure, measure of restoration at that point. So it's a, a promise in the first instance just to, to God's people that he will deal with uh, the evil that they have um, been afflicted with. They've suffered, they've faced trouble and difficulty, they'd be tempted to think that the Lord is not in control, and here is encouragement for them to know that the Lord is sovereign over the nations. And so God calls the harvester in verse 13 to put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, to go in tread, for the winepress is full. So these gathered nations are like a field of wheat ready for harvest, or like a wine press, sort of full and overflowing, ready to be trodden, uh, ready for the grapes to flow out. Indeed, the vats are already overflowing. Uh, the identity of the harvest are not mentioned here, but it's the Lord who is commanding. So the nations are ripe for judgment because their evil is great. Their evil has reached full measure. So in the Bible again and again we're promised that God is just and righteous and we're shown that he does at length in the end bring judgment upon evil individuals 
and nations. In the end, he does act to overthrow all that is wicked. But he does it when the time is ripe, when the time is ready. We saw that, didn't we, with the, well, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, that the Lord sent the angelic visitors to go and see was it as bad as, as the rumours had, had been. And they found that the corruption of, of the people at that time was very far advanced. Their perversion was not hidden away in back alleys, but um, was paraded through the streets and celebrated. The cities were ripe for judgment, and so judgment fell. But also in Genesis with Abraham, um, you might remember that when the Lord promised, he, well, he promised that Abraham and his descendants would go to Egypt for, for, gen for some generations and then be brought back to the land. Um, and the reason given was that the iniquity of the Amorites, the inhabitants of the land, is not yet complete. So the, the nations were not, at the time of Abraham, ripe for judgment. That would take several generations of these Canaanite cities to get worse and worse before ultimately the Lord came and brought his judgment upon the nations. And so here, when, when he says um, that the, the nations here were ripe for judgment, these surrounding nations of uh, Edom, Tyre, Egypt, the time had come for them to face judgment. So through, through the prophet Joel, he's encouraging uh, the Lord's people that these nations which have uh, so oppressed them and, and hurt them, even dragged away their children into slavery, that actually the Lord is righteous and that he would at length act to deal with them and bring judgment upon them. And so um, this great host was gathered for judgment. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The word multitudes, it can refer to the, the great mass of the crowd itself or the, the noise made by the great tumult. You imagine a great army gathering together and the great noise of a gathered army. We, we sort of hear from our house that the noise in King's Own Stadium on a, on a Saturday afternoon, a great roar going up from just that little stadium. But here, you know, a great multitude and just the noise of the tumult going up, this great uh, noise uh, gathering, uh, which would be very threatening to the, to the people of God. But here uh, they come to meet their maker. They come to meet the Lord of heaven and earth. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And the valley of decision is the valley, the place where the Lord will render his judicial decision. The place where the Lord sits as judge. We sometimes use this expression, don't we? The valley of decision. We say, oh, I'm in the valley of decision when we've got a big decision to make. We can't decide whether we want to study astronomy or, or biology or something. Or, um, we think, well, I'm in, I'm in the valley of decision. Um, uh, but actually here, the valley of decision is the place where God makes his decision. Are they guilty or are they innocent? He's going to bring his verdict against the nations, and they have been shown to be evil, richly deserving of judgment, ripe for judgment. So God sits ready as the judge on that day. And that, that is the place where he's drawn them. And, and he says that the day of the Lord 
is near in the valley of decision. And the day of the Lord, this expression of the day of the Lord, which has come up in Job before, it's the day when the Lord carries out the sanctions of his covenant, the day when the Lord acts, um, the day when the Lord executes his, his judgments um, and his blessings. So Joel has, has mentioned this day of the Lord as the time when the Lord would bring his judgment against his own people. Uh, remember the, the locust cloud were gathering against Jerusalem and the day of the Lord was threatened to come. Here the day of the Lord is against uh, the nations, the day of God's judgment against these nations. Verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Familiar language in, in Joel, the language of cosmic decreation. Um, just as the sky turned black when the locust plague came over that people, uh, over Jerusalem. Here, uh, the sun and moon darkened because the time has drawn near for the judgment on these surrounding nations of Edom and Egypt and the nations which had attacked Israel. The darkness falls and verse 16, the Lord speaks. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. Here we have the appearance of the Lord himself, the Lord who renders judgment. He speaks to announce his verdict and Joel uses this very striking image of uh, the Lord appearing as, as a lion and we find this at the beginning, right at the beginning of the book of Amos, the Lord roaring from Zion and in Amos actually the Lord's word is against his own people Judah and Jerusalem and here the Lord is roaring from Zion against his uh, against his enemies against these nations it's one of the things C.S. Lewis picks up on doesn't it this, this imagery in in um, well, all the Narnia chronicles about how the uh, Aslan is this great lion who, who roars and um, and speaks out against the uh, protects. I think of the horse's boy protects Shasta from the enemies. And the, there's a, there's a scene there where Shasta is comforted by the presence of this cat, and then the cat sort of turns into this lion and roars. And the the jackals and all the night creatures which were threatening Shasta are there, swept back and pushed back. And there's this. Um, Aslan is this lion roaring, um, and, and this, this language, actually, we, we find this language of the Lord roaring as a lion, different places in the scriptures, but here we find him in, in Joel, and then in Amos, the Lord roaring from Zion, uttering his voice from Jerusalem. So it's a very striking uh, image here. And so we see that the voice of the Lord in great authority and power and we see that throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, the voice of God speaking and creation coming into being. Uh, we see uh, the voice of the Lord. We, we read that psalm last week, Psalm 46, uh, verse 6, that the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Or Psalm 29, verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of of majesty 
The Lord rules over the nations. He speaks and we have a nation falling uh, into dust or a nation being destroyed. It is all uh, governed by the, the voice and the command of the Lord who reigns from Zion. And so here we have um, the Lord utters his voice against the nations, but the Lord restoring his covenant people, Israel. Verse 16, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. So here there is a distinction between the nations and the Lord's covenant people, uh, his people. He is a refuge to his covenant people. He is here a stronghold to his people. So the Lord is going to speak in, in, in majesty and awe, and the, the nations are going to fall under his, his judgment. And yet, here is the Lord who is a refuge and a stronghold to his people. He is going to dwell in their midst. And here the Lord is promising a restoration of his covenantal presence with his people. Uh, they'd suffered greatly, haven't they? They'd been disciplined by the Lord. They'd faced locust plague and great trouble. But the Joel is promising here that the Lord would restore his people. And we find this in the prophets. We find in the prophet Isaiah uh, a, a similar prophecy that, that Jerusalem would be purified, that actually Jerusalem would be devastated, but then purified. So um, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5, then speaks of then the Lord will create um, over the whole site of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies, a cloud by day, and smoke, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So there again in Isaiah, this language of the Lord uh, making Mount Zion a place of shelter, a place of his presence. And so this is the, the promise here in Joel is that God is going to dwell with his people again, in the midst of his people. And so um, that was the, the blessing in Eden, wasn't it? This, this garden, and the Lord was with his people. That was the blessing of Sinai. The Lord descended to be with his people. That was the promise of God, that he will be with his people. That was what Moses longed for, Exodus 33:15 Moses said if your presence will not go with me do not bring us up from there and Moses knew that he, want, that he needed the Lord to be with his people in the midst of his people so that is what this language is about that the Lord is promising to be with his people in the midst of them so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, verse 17, and strangers shall never again pass through it. He's speaking here of they've had invading armies coming in. So here is a promise that the Lord's 
uh, city will be uh, secure. So it's a promise of pr protection for God's people. It's a promise of his presence with them. And then verse, from verse 18, there's a promise of the restoration of uh, the covenantal blessings, God's blessings with his people. Verse 18, in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. So the Lord is restoring blessings. Uh, they've been devastated by locusts, but they've been turned into this waste place, this desert. But the desert would be restored to being a garden, like a garden of Eden once again, a fruitful, abundant garden. And uh, a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So blessing was to flow out from the Lord's house, like at the end of the book of Ezekiel, where blessing flows out from the temple, from under the altar, to flow out uh, through the land, bringing life. So there is this great reversal. Earlier, Joel has said that the land, which would be like Eden, will become a desert. Now the desert is becoming like Eden, a place of delight, a fruitful, a bountiful land. And the nations which have been prosperous would become desolate. Verse 19, Egypt should become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. There'll be a reversal. And again, for the violence done to the people of Judah. We're reminded that he's dealing with in this, all this language of a real historical events. But then Judah, this promise, shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So what is he promising? Well, he's promising a restoration for the people of Israel, after all that they've suffered, a restoration of his, his presence with them, he'll dwell with them, a restoration of blessings, they've had blessings removed, they're gonna have blessings restored, uh, a restoration of, of peace and abundance. And as part of that, he's going to overthrow and deal with evil that has afflicted them. Um, so he's promising that to God's covenant people who face all sorts of difficulties, and particularly through uh, the exile and the restoration. And so as we, we think about these things and as we draw these things through to, to meditate on Christ and think about uh, his work and, and the appearance of Christ in the New Testament, what are, the, what are the lessons for us? Well, I think one of the things we see very clearly through this is simply God's sovereign power to judge the nations, his sovereign control over all these things. We see in the prophets, we see here and elsewhere in the prophets, we see the rise and fall of nations. We see Edom and Tyre and Sidon, and that God can raise them up, he can gather them together, he can bring them down. Um, and as we read the Old Testament, we see um, God's judgments, um, that these do not just occur right at the end of history, um, although that is the, the last and final judgment, but God works out his purposes in the midst of history, he's sovereign over the whole lot. And, and I think that's just a great encouragement for us to remember 
as when we look at the world in which we live, when we look at the nations of the world, when sometimes it looks like things just go from bad to worse and wickedness advances, we are tempted to lose heart and doubt that God is sovereign. Um, but actually, we, we are encouraged to see that the Lord reigns. Um, maybe you're not so worried about the rise and fall of nations, but you are worried about the rise and rise of uh, gas prices and things like that. Well, even that, uh, the rise and fall of nations, it, it impacts our lives in many ways, but yet we need to trust that the Lord is sovereign over all that happens around us. But we see in the book of John, it's more than that, isn't it? He's sovereign over the rise and fall of nations, that is true, but that he's working out his purposes for his covenant people. We see his faithfulness to his people Israel. In the book of Joel, he's seeing that he's dealing with them for their sin, and he's calling them to repentance, he's disciplining them, and he's determined that he will have this holy people. The Lord is working to make Zion a dwelling place for himself, and he's promising that. And we see that that is all fulfilled in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the Lord Jesus, he comes as the covenant Lord who came to his people, the one who came to call his covenant people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the one who came to bring judgment on unbelieving Israel, the one who came to restore the blessings of his presence to his people and the blessings of uh, his covenant in the, in, the, in the reign of the Messiah. It was no coincidence that the first miracle of the Lord Jesus was at a wedding. And it is no coincidence that this first great sign of the Messianic age was the, the, this, great, this great miracle of the turning of water to wine, this great provision, this great abundance. No, um, no accident that the Lord fed his people so that they were satisfied. The Lord in the midst of his people bringing blessing. These are the signs of the messianic age, that blessing uh, that he um, came has, has begun. And we see in, as the Lord comes, we see the Lord's purpose to sanctify and make holy a people for his own possession. And such is his unwavering commitment to that purpose that the Lord himself went to the cross. On the cross, our Lord Jesus endured the wrath of God uh, at Calvary's tree. That was the great day of the Lord in history, the day when the sky turned black and the sun was put out, all the lights went out as at Calvary. The full weight of God's wrath was poured out on the Son of God and there our sins were dealt with at the cross. Our sins were dealt with at the cross, if you're trusting in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And the day of judgment when the, the, the God of heaven and earth pours out his wrath against your sin, that is in the past. That has been dealt with by Christ at the cross. We trouble with our sin often, aren't we? We worry about it. And yet if you're in Christ, your sins have been nailed to the cross Christ died and he rose and he rose that he might bring blessings, the abundant blessings 
of the new covenant, the new wine of the new covenant. And these gifts of bread and wine that we're going to share in later are just signs of that blessing, signs of that covenantal blessing, of that satisfaction that we have. We, when we eat, uh, we, have, we are satisfied. And when we feed on Christ, we experience rich satisfaction. We experience his blessing. And he is the Lord who has promised to dwell in our midst. He is the Lord who dwells in the church. Jesus Christ uh, said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go make disciples among the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the Lord's promise of his covenantal blessing. That, that is a, a, the promise of his presence. It's not a promise that we have to wait to until we get to heaven to enjoy. The promise of his covenantal presence is a promise that the church has now. He is with his people. He will guide and lead his people. He will purify his people. So we see that all these things find fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his pouring out of the Spirit. The Lord is with his people and he is creating a holy people for himself. And so there's rich, rich encouragement for us in the book of Joel. We hear that call uh, for us to repent, to turn to Christ. It very much, uh, the book of Joel boils down to a uh, come to Jesus, turn from your sins kind of message. But there's just rich encouragement for us here of the Lord being with his people, of his power and his glory. So let us put our trust in him and hope in him. Amen. I'm going to close with a prayer.